This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 357th episode, we've got a bunch of news. I've got a paper about an amazing ankylosaur osteoderm, and I think you've got one about sauropod osteoderms. (laughs) What a coincidence. (laughs) It's an osteoderm type episode. For ankylosaurs and sauropods, hmm. We also have an interview with Cameron Paul, who is the author of the controversial Allosaurus as a scavenger paper, but it's really more about how sauropod carrion affected the ecosystem, but more about that later. We also have Dinosaur of the Day, Denversaurus, and a fun fact, which includes some dragonflies. Ooh. I know you like dragonflies. And you've been looking more into them lately. I have. Yeah, I didn't. I just learned that about you, that you really <laughs> like dragonflies. So I incorporated them into this fun fact just oh, for you. Oh, thanks. But before we get into all of that, we have some patrons that we'd like to thank, including one new patron, and that's Ankylosaulus. Get it? Yep, Saulus instead of Saurus. That's a good one. Their name's Saul. Yeah. I am very pleased by that pun. I'm I'm glad that was the choice. So thank you very much, and Kylo Solace, for joining. And then rounding out our shout-outs, we've got Miriam, Elrex, Rogan, Danny Hermes, Stefan, The Georges Family, Iwan, Jonah, and Randy and Squim. All right. Thank you, everybody. We really appreciate all of your support. And also, thanks to everyone who was able to make it to our Q&A the other day, speaking of our patrons. So, uh, yeah, we'll probably do more things like that in the future. Stay tuned. So, again, thank you for being a part of our community because, of course, you allow us to do this podcast and things like the Q&A. And we're so happy that you're here. And, of course, we couldn't do it without you. And if you want to join our growing community, then go to our page at patreon.com slash inodino. Ooh, jumping into the news. I got a look. I didn't realize I was starting. You've started a few recently, but I always throw you off when I put yours first. That's because for the majority of our episodes, it's been you. We're trying to mix it up more. Yeah. So there was a paper called The Finite Elements Analysis Suggests a Defensive Role for Osteoderms in Titanosaur Dinosaurs, Sauropoda, by Julian Silva Jr. and others that was published in Cretaceous Research. So, I mean, we're kind of talking about those uh, osteoderms. They're not just for defending ankylosaurs. They might have also helped sauropods. Yeah, that is new because I think previously with osteoderms on titanosaurs, they talk about them as being like energy stores or calcium storage structures or something like that. Yeah. Well, so in this study, they analyzed 
simulations of bites of a crocodiliform and an abelosaurid in titanosaur osteoderms to see if those osteoderms could be used as armor. Interesting. So like an, a simulation of a crocodile or an abelosaur biting an osteoderm mm-hmm. just to see what would happen. Exactly. <laughs> and I mean, like you were saying, there's been talk about osteoderms storing minerals, especially calcium for growth or eugenesis for reproduction. But this study found that they could probably do more than store minerals. Hmm. So they used finite elements analyses, FEA, to see if osteoderms, quote, could resist stress caused by putative predators, end quote. So they started by CT scanning two osteoderms from a titanosaur, and then they used the bite force of a medium-sized Barusakai crocodiliform, which was about 600 newtons, and the estimated bite force of a Carnotaurus, more than 3,300 newtons. Oof. Yeah, to simulate the bites on these osteoderms. And they found that the osteoderms on the outside were rugose, but internally they were flat and smooth. One osteoderm, interestingly, was more solid than the other. The other one had some cavities from bone tissue loss and signs of internal remodeling. So they're saying, well, the one with the cavities was probably more fragile than the one that was more solid. Makes sense. Yeah. And the author said that, quote, titanosaur osteoderms often show signs of internal resorption with cavities taking almost their entire inner space, end quote. So the cavities means basically there's a big hole in the osteoderms. (laughs) Yeah, it's basically all hollow. Yeah. They said that their results, the FEA results, indicated that the osteoderms that were more solid could be more effective for protecting the titanosaur, which could be especially helpful to younger titanosaurs that had osteoderms that would have been proportionally large and closer to each other. Interesting. So they're assuming that the osteoderms were like the same size on the younger sauropods as they were on the older sauropods, and they sort of like grew into their osteoderms. That's the hypothesis anyway, yeah. It's hard to say because not many titanosaur osteoderms have been found. Hmm. That could be, though, because of preservational or collection biases. Also, the titanosaur osteoderms, looking at these two, they tend to get more hollow as the titanosaur grows and ages, so it's harder to find these fossils. Hmm. Gotcha. But the idea could be, like, yeah, this is armor when they're younger and smaller and need the protection more. Yeah, I hadn't thought about the connection between if they're using the osteoderms when they're making eggs to store extra calcium, that that when they were young, they weren't making eggs. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, the males never make eggs, so I guess they could potentially use it maybe in an emergency if they need some extra calcium or something, but maybe theirs were tougher more of the time. But then for the females, when they were juveniles, then they still would have been tough if the only time that they used the extra calcium was for making eggs. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully there'll be more studies around because we don't know that many titanosaurs that had osteoderms. It's really cool to think about. Yeah, that's true. And it is kind of a mystery how sauropods survived when they were small Mm -hmm. because they were slow. (laughs) And if they're small, unless they were in a group, then that would make them very vulnerable. Mm-hmm. So there were, we've heard theories about, well, maybe they hid in the woods. And then when they were in the woods, it was harder for big predators to get at them. And then when they got bigger, they came out of the woods. But it seems like, well, if they were in the woods, some other predator right. that was around their size could probably get them. But if they had osteoderms, that could help for sure. That's cool. Does that make you like sauropods better? 
I don't have anything against Sauropods. I just like ankylosaurs more. Yeah, because of their armor. <laughs> yeah, but there's no way that the Sauropods had armor rivaling an ankylosaur. <laughs> True. So speaking of ankylosaur armor, I've got a new article that was written by Susanna Maidment and others and published in Nature, Ecology, and Evolution. Oh, is this the new ankylosaur? It is, yes. Nice. Although... I was a little surprised to see that Susanna Maidment was the lead author on it because she's much better known as the stegosaur expert. Maybe she's going for a thyrea foreign expert. It does seem a little bit that way, maybe. It's also this discovery was from Morocco and she named another dinosaur Morocco like two years ago. So it might have more to do with that connection. Mm. I'm not sure. But the paper starts in a fantastic way saying, quote, Ankylosauria is a diverse clade of armored dinosaurs whose members were important constituents of many Cretaceous faunas, end quote. <laughs> this is like when I read quotes about sauropods being the best or the most important. Or yeah. <laughs> I agree that ankylosaurs are very important. So although they didn't use the word very, but I think they, they meant to. <laughs> this new find especially, I would say, is very important because it's very unique. So... Before I get too far into it, the new ankylosaur is named Spicomelus, which is basically, I think, how you say it in Latin. It's probably anglicized to Spicomelus. That's how I'm going to say it because that's what it looks like, sort of like Spiclipius. It starts with S-P-I-C. Mm. So speak is how you say it in Latin. That's how you do, you do like the long I into the E sound. Mm -hmm. But anyway, people are going to say it Spicomelus probably. So that's what I'm going to go with. And then the species name is affair. Spicomelus is spike collar in Latin, and affair is Africa, or hmm. it's after Africa. So the spike collar in Africa. Yep. And even though spike collar sounds cool, it's not even remotely as cool as what the actual fossil is. It's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> so the holotype is just one bone. It's the only bone they found. Must be a really cool bone. It is so cool. Usually you, you're talking about you need more than one bone. Yes, usually you do, but this bone is crazy. It's sort of two bones in a way, but superficially it looks like a thagomizer, I would say. It's mm -hmm. thagomizer-like, although Maidment pointed out that thagomizers have more of like oblong spikes on them, and this one has round spikes, so like more conical spikes, and they're all situated on the same side of a bone. They're not sticking out two sides like you get on a thagomizer. And they appear to stick up up rather than out to mm -hmm. the sides like thagomizers do. So it's probably not from a stegosaur. And on closer inspection, when you look at this thing, it's actually a partial rib with spines sticking out of it. Oh. Which is really weird. Yeah. So... <laughs> It's basically a T-shaped dorsal rib, which are common on stegosaurs and ankylosaurs. We almost never talk about shapes of ribs, mm -hmm. but basically, yeah, so it's like T-shaped. T yeah, usually for stegosaurs and ankylosaurs, we're talking about the tail or the armor or the spikes and then the head. Yep. And usually the spikes don't have anything to do with the ribs, mm -hmm. <laughs> so the ribs get left out. But so they have this T-shape where the top of the T is like the back surface, you know, up towards the sky, mm -hmm. <laughs> and then the bottom of the T sticks down towards the inside of the animal. But even though that's common in stegosaurs and ankylosaurs, it is not common to have spines sticking up out of the top of that T. That goes for <laughs> most animals, I'd say. Yes. 
In fact, there is no other example of spine sticking out of the top of a rib in this way <laughs> anywhere in the animal kingdom, period, let alone ankylosaurs or dinosaurs or anything. So it's a really amazing looking bone. It's also curved. Once you know it's a rib, it's not really that surprising. But when you first look at it, you're like, what is this curved bone? It's got a bunch of spikes sticking out of it. It looks nuts. But when you see that it's a rib, you're like, oh, okay, it's curved sort of in a typical rib shape, basically like a parenthesis symbol, you know, that's just slightly curved, they usually call it. Although it looks very curved for something with spikes sticking out of it that's an osteoderm, because mm. usually those are individual things that aren't very curved. So technically, the bottom of the T is the rib, and the top of the T is a big flat osteoderm that's fused to the rib. Oh. So the osteoderm part is much larger than the rib it's fused to. It sort of wraps around the top of the T of the rib. Mm -hmm. And the spikes stick out of the osteoderm. So technically, multiple spikes and this top layer on the rib are all just part of one giant osteoderm. That's a well-protected rib. It really is. <laughs> but I would say the, the difference, that distinction between what is bone and what is osteoderm really doesn't matter that much because the whole thing is co-ossified, meaning it's thoroughly fused together into one unit. So it's literally like this giant spiky rib bone slash osteoderm <laughs> that they found. It's nuts. That is crazy. So some of the details about it. The T-shape is about 58 millimeters or about two and a quarter inches wide. So that's sort of the width of the top of the T, if you know, like the letter T. And it's about 33 millimeters or about one and a quarter inches deep. So that means that the T is wider than it is long. It's a pretty broad bone, relatively mm -hmm. speaking. There are four spikes sticking out of the top of the T. The smallest spike is also the only complete one. It's about 54 millimeters or just over two inches long. And that one's on one end of it. And then they're longer basically in the middle. And then there's another shorter one on the other end. The longest spike is 97 millimeters, which is just under four inches long, but it's missing the tip. So it could be over four inches if it included the end of the spike. And they're pretty sharp looking. <laughs> they're not like rounded really in any way. They're, they're pretty pointy. Plus, we don't know if there was anything covering them. They found a little bit of material that looked like it was on the surface when they used the right kind of polarized light. But it seemed like that might have been there from the fossilization process. The overall structure of the spikes are pretty similar to a horn. There's about two and a half millimeters of thick, dense woven bone on the outside. And then there's a vascularized inner core because you got to supply blood and nutrients to bone because it's living tissue. Mm -hmm. The structure also has several quote unquote long pipes, <laughs> which go from the core to the surface. So maybe that could be supplying nutrients to something on the outside, like say a keratin sheath or something over the surface of the spike. It was even larger in real life. Could be, yeah. They, they didn't go into any of the hypothesizing because it was published in Nature, Ecology, and Evolution. And that's a pretty succinct journal. I think the whole paper is only a few pages long. <laughs> so I ended up going into a lot of the sources that they have. It actually took me longer to read because I had to go dig into all their references because uh -huh. I was like, I need more background. Dig in. Yeah. <laughs> the way that they figured out it was probably an ankylosaur, in addition to that T shape, which led them to think it was probably a thyreophoran. 
is by doing histology on it. So they sliced into it to look really closely at what the structure of the bone looked like. Mm -hmm. Because when you only have one bone, you got to do everything you can. When they looked really closely at it, what they found is that parts of the osteoderm have a plywood-like structure that follow the curvature of the rib. So it's sort of different layers that are structured with each other in a way, but Mm -hmm. they're very distinct layers like you get in plywood. And that's something you only see in ankylosaurs. So yeah, basically it's unique to ankylosaurs within Thyreophora, meaning that you don't really see it in stegosaurs or in basal Thyreophorans, like they have done histology on Scalidosaurus, which was before the ankylosaur and stegosaurs split in Thyreophora, and they didn't find the plywood type arrangement in Scalidosaurus. So yeah, we think at least within Thyreophora it's unique. But there are some other animals that also have that plywood-like structure. There are turtles, adasaurs, phytosaurs, and titanosaurs that also sometimes have it. Hmm. But the only ones that are known to have spikes are the adasaurs. We were just talking about them in our Q&A because mm-hmm. <laughs> they're sort of ankylosaur-like in their sort of low bodies with spikes at times. And then also some turtles do have spikes on occasion. But Adosaurs went extinct at the end of the Triassic, so unless there are 40 million years of undiscovered fossils and this is some mystery adosaur that no one would ever expect, which is possible, but probably not. And turtles, basically all of their known osteoderms are much smaller and usually have a different structure than this osteoderm. So by comparison, it looks like we've got similar spines on ankylosaurs and we know that ankylosaurs were around at the time so it's the most likely answer Mm -hmm. although still remarkable so if it's one of the other ones it's just even more remarkable yeah (laughs) and it's hard to rule out 100 percent without more fossils so the really crazy thing though about it is that the spicamellus osteoderm is fused to a rib yeah The way the authors put it is, quote, Indeed, to our knowledge, no other vertebrate, extant or extinct, possesses osteoderms directly fused to the dorsal ribs. And then in parentheses, they have turtle carapace elements are not modified osteoderms, end quote. Those are also weird, but yeah. Can you imagine having... (laughs) Spikes sticking out Out of of your your skin (laughs) that are attached to your rib. No, it's crazy. It's like with Spinosaurus. I can't believe that those things are actually connected to vertebrae. Like, Mm -hmm. why? (laughs) This just seems so dangerous to have important skeletal elements sticking out of your body, basically, by those connections. There must be some reason. I hope we find out the reason someday. Yeah, I hope so, too. I should also add a caveat that there is a cynodont and a pseudosuchian that have bumpy ribs. So those might have also sort of stuck up through the bone or through the skin, but the bumps aren't from osteoderms. They're just grown directly out of the bone. They're just straight up bone sticking Mm. out. In spicamellus, the top of it is an osteoderm, meaning that it grew in the skin before it fused to the rib. So they sort of grew separately and then fused together. Yeah, it's just so, so weird. (laughs) So the osteoderm fused to rib arrangement would add a lot of rigidity to the osteoderms when it's used for self-defense, which is one reason that they might have had it. That's sort of the best guess of why you would have this very strange structure. Mm -hmm. Essentially, that T-shape that the rib has has the same advantage of an I-beam in resisting twisting in two directions. So it'd be hard to like bend it sort of along the way it's already curved because it's got that extra T 
coming off the bottom, reinforcing it from twisting in that direction. And then obviously the top of the T prevents it from twisting in the direction that it's facing. So that could be a reason that it evolved this. It would make it harder to bend and then maybe that's better for defense. But my first thought is always, if enough force gets applied to the spike, it could damage the rib underneath it too, which seems like Mm -hmm. more of a risk than that added defensive ability. But in whatever ecosystem it was in, maybe that was less likely and it was better to have just that little bit of extra strength that it gets by fusing to the rib than by free floating in the skin to some extent. Yeah. This is a very early ankylosaur, which could be why it's such a weird structure. Like it was still... It was trying something weird out. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. It wasn't the most refined (laughs) example. Maybe it did break its ribs a lot and then its descendants evolved to not have that. (laughs) Yeah, that's possible. Or yeah, they evolved some other method of sort of fixing the osteoderms in place, like with some extra ligaments or some kind of attachments or thicker skin or something that held them in place without needing that added risk of having it attached to the rib. That's definitely possible. So like I mentioned, this bone was found in Morocco. Specifically, it was found in the Middle Atlas Mountains, which is not far south from Fez, if you're familiar with Moroccan geography. It's in the Elmers III formation, which is about 163 to 168 million years ago, which is super old for an ankylosaur. Mm -hmm. There are not a lot of ankylosaurs from the Middle Jurassic. A little info on some of the other animals that lived with it, because I really wanted to find out what it was using that extra possibly defense bonus of fusing the osteoderm for the rib for. Right. But unfortunately, we don't know too much about the meat eaters from the area. So the Elmer's group includes tracks from theropods, sauropods, and a possible stegosaur. But in terms of body fossils, we can't really identify them beyond those families with the exception of Cediosaurus mograbiensis. And as you pointed out in your Cediosaurus dinosaur of the day, Cediosaurus was basically a sauropod wastebasket taxon for a long time. So it could be different from what we think. Yeah, I don't think that it's been redefined as a new genus since Upchurch in 2003 said it shouldn't be considered Cediosaurus. Mm -hmm. I couldn't find anything where someone was like, but it's this. (laughs) So I I think it's just sort of like there's a sauropod in Morocco and it's not Cediosaurus. But it used to be. Yeah, and it might be unique enough to be its own genus. Like it's not just random unidentifiable fragments. So Basically, we've got a medium-sized sauropod, a theropod, and maybe a stegosaur based on tracks from the area. That doesn't tell you too much. It doesn't. If you look at other mountain ranges in Morocco that are around the mid-Jurassic as well, they include Adra Ticlet, which is the stegosaur that Maidment named in 2019 based on vertebrae and a humerus. So we got another herbivore and also another sauropod, which is Atlas Source. <laughs> So we don't really know any of the carnivores from this fauna. So it's hard. Yeah. Hopefully we'll find more because I really want to know if there was something about that carnivore where this specific type of defense was useful. Like did it have some kind of funny head or was it a specific size where it seemed like that added rigidity would be really useful and not a risk. Couldn't bite into the ribs easily or yeah, something. Yeah. Maybe it's got short teeth. I don't know. 
The only previously known Middle Jurassic ankylosaurs are Sarcolestes and possibly Tianchisaurus. Sarcolestes is from Europe and Tianchisaurus is from China, but Spicamelis is likely older than them, which would make it the oldest known ankylosaur anywhere in the world. Oh, that's cool. And maybe that's why it's so weird. Yeah, it could be. It's also the first named ankylosaur from Africa, period. Nice. Yeah, there's a, it's a lot of firsts. It's a very important find, even though it's just one bone. Mm-hmm. It's such a weird bone, and at such an early time that it's pretty significant. According to the authors, before this paper, there was only one valid ankylosaur from Gondwana, meaning most of the world. I think Gondwana is <laughs> like two-thirds of the continents. It's basically Africa, Antarctica, Arabia, Australia, India, South America, and Zealandia. I always include Zealandia because mm-hmm. I think it deserves to be its own continent. <laughs> and between all of those, they're saying they had only one named ankylosaur, which I think actually was a mistake because the article that they cite in the paper to back up that claim is the paper that split Minmi into Minmi and Kumbarasaurus. Mm, so that would be two. Yeah. <laughs> so it was weird that that was the one they referenced because I was like, what is this paper? I, is, it, is, is that the one that's synonymizing Minmi and Kumbarasaurus that I'm not aware of? But no. So there's that. There's also Antarctopelta from Antarctica. So maybe they don't consider that valid either. Or maybe they just meant to say Australia because that paper said that Minmi was the only one in Australia prior mm-hmm. to being split. I don't know. But even if those are all included, there's still way more ankylosaurs found in Laurasia by like an order of magnitude, even with this new one. So there's something going on there with how there are more ankylosaurs in a smaller part of the world than there are in most of the rest of the world combined. Although there is some evidence of ankylosaurs elsewhere, like there are all those notosaur things we talk about in South America pretty often, but we don't have any named genera from there. We just find osteoderms and teeth and stuff. Nothing as exciting as a big spiky osteoderm fused to a rib yeah. <laughs> that justifies naming a new species in South America. So putting that all together, if we include Spicamelis, ankylosaurs were widespread across the globe by the time of the Middle Jurassic, meaning they spread out very quickly after they first evolved. Yeah, Middle Jurassic's pretty early. It is, especially for ankylosaurs. It also means that ankylosaurs and stegosaurs coexisted in many ecosystems for over 20 million years, which basically is a pretty strong piece of evidence contrary to the idea that the decline of stegosaurs lines up with the rise of ankylosaurs because they seem to coexist for such a long time. Ankylosaurs didn't edge out the stegosaurs then. Yeah, maybe not. I mean, it's still possible because there was a huge radiation increase in the early Cretaceous of ankylosaurs. So maybe that was what it took to get rid of stegosaurs. But it also could just mean that it was something else, like some food source or other competition that got rid of stegosaurs. Yeah, it's really hard to figure out the cause of extinction for animals that lived so long ago. Oh, yeah, that's for sure especially whole families. Mm -hmm. But that sure is one awesome bone slash osteoderm. I know. I hope they find more fossils. We can piece together this weird dinosaur. (laughs) Yeah. I could really go for a head. Yeah. They find a head to match it. Although the heads of early ankylosaurs aren't that exciting, it would just help to fit it in phylogenetically and all that kind of stuff. More ribs too. (laughs) Were these spikes on all the ribs or just some of the ribs? (laughs) That's true. 
I could see how this would be the one bone too if you were just like out in the field you would notice because it's literally like this curved bone with big spikes sticking out of it. It's like, how could you miss it? Mm-hmm. Crazy. There have been other dinosaurs in Morocco that were found and then they went back to them and found more later. Mm-hmm. Like Spinosaurus. Could happen. It could. Speaking of finding dinosaurs, there's a team from the University of Washington and the Burke Museum of Natural History and Culture that excavated four dinosaurs in Montana over the summer. That's a lot for one summer. I know. It includes the ilium of a theropod, is the hips and legs of a hadrosaur, a pelvis, toe claw, and limb from another theropod that could be Anzu or a new species, and a triceratops skull, rib bones, lower jaw, teeth, and the ball on the back of the skull that connects to the neck vertebrae, which is known as the trailer hitch. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> yeah. So they had volunteers, staff, and students help dig for the bones. It was found in the Hell Creek Formation. It's part of the Hell Creek Project. Three of the specimens, so all of them except the Triceratops, will be prepared at the Burke Museum this fall and winter. And if you're visiting, you can watch them prepare these fossils. The Triceratops, they're still are more fossils to be excavated. Hmm. So they're going to continue next summer. Wow, that's good. Because they already got quite a bit of it. They mm -hmm. got ribs and like pretty much the whole head, it sounds like, because it's not only the skull, but also the... The trailer hitch. Yeah, and the jaw. <laughs> <laughs> so the Triceratops is called the fly-by trike. It's because the rancher who found it was flying his airplane over the ranch and spotted it. Wow. They found about... 30% of the skull bones so far. So, yeah, there's still a little bit more to find. They're saying it probably died on a floodplain. It's estimated to have lived about 300,000 years before the KPG mass extinction. So, like, pretty close to the, the end there. Yeah. Well, they wouldn't have realized it. Anyway. There's <laughs> <laughs> still plenty of time to live a long, full life as a triceratops. Yeah. years. <laughs> and this one probably did. They're saying it's probably an old triceratops based on the epioccipitals on the frill being completely fused. Because hmm. younger triceratops have a more triangular shape. Also, the brow horns curve downwards instead of upwards. So yeah, I'm thinking an older individual. Nice. Yeah, that sounds like the best find out of their set. Although Anzu's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Or it's a new species, what? That'd be nice. Yeah. In the Czech Republic, Dinosauria Museum Prague is opening October 4th. Well, that's coming up really soon. It is. <laughs> <laughs> They're working with the Philip J. Curry Museum. The plan is to, quote, present the largest private collection of fossils of real dinosaur skeletons in the world with the ambition to further expand it, end quote. So they're starting with, it sounded like five fossils. There's a triceratops named Trick that appears to have wounds on its head from a T-Rex, a 90% complete Diplodocus, hmm. two Mosasaurs, so... You know, not dinosaurs, but still cool. And an allosaurus. And then they're also going to have a life-size model of T-Rex, VR displays, and a gallery of paleo art by Czech artists. Oh, nice. Yeah. Love paleo art. So this museum's at the Premium Outlet Prague Airport Complex. That's interesting. I'm a little surprised that five fossils, starting with five fossils, they have ambitions to become the largest private collection of fossils Maybe those are the only fossils that were ready to be put on display that they have. Well, that could be. A 90% complete Diplodocus. <laughs> that is very complete. Yeah. That's pretty crazy. That might be the most complete Diplodocus. I'm not sure. 
That'd be a good enough claim to fame without needing a whole bunch of other dinosaurs. <laughs> That's always good to have more. The more the merrier. So in Colorado, jumping into art, this is about dinosaur art. Morrison's Dinosaur Ridge has a new mural of three dinosaurs that used to live in the area. It includes a Stegosaurus, which has been found at Dinosaur Ridge, and two Apatosaurus. The artist is Julia Williams. They're also going to be adding some tracks to show the footprints that you can see at the site. And the mural is really pretty. It's bright. The Stegosaurus, for example, it's like this really pretty orange and purple colors. Mm. Dinosaur Ridge also plans to create a life-size geometric sculpture of Eolambia that's going to apparently look a lot like a Rubik's Cube. <laughs> that reminds me a little bit of some of the sculptures we saw in Korea. We saw a Triceratops that's like metal and has this all these geometric shapes to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a, Dinosaurs are very good inspiration for sculptures, I think, with oh, yeah. all their different shapes and their large size and everything. They're good for murals, too, and I love it when they're really colorful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like the one I'm going to paint on the side of our house, right? That is undecided. <laughs> <laughs> In Missouri, St. Louis Science Center has a new traveling exhibit called Tyrannosaurs Meet the Family. I like that name. Reminds me of a movie. But anyway, <laughs> they have more than 25 Tyrannosaur models, as well as fossils and casts, and a replica of Scotty the T-Rex, which I don't think there's too many places you can see Scotty the T-Rex yet. Yeah, it's a pretty new one. Yeah. I mean, we talk about Sue a lot, and Sue is traveling more now. And Stan. Stan is everywhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this exhibit's open from October 30th until January 24th of next year. And then last... Mary Anning's statue in Dorset is going to be unveiled on May 21st of next year. We've been talking about this for a while. I know. <laughs> so it's going to coincide with her 222nd birthday, or what would have been her 222nd birthday. So the Mary Anning Rocks campaign is now working on getting approval to have the statue above Church Cliff Beach in Lyme Regis. Hmm, gotcha. That's cool. It's happening. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy that she didn't have a statue there before because come on <laughs> <laughs> this episode is brought to you by the colorado northwestern community college where you can become a part of the scientific process as a participant you can go on a real life dinosaur dig and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. <laughs> mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. 
head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now we're going to go on to our interview with Cameron Paul, where we're going to talk a lot about Allosaurus and other scavenging behavior. But if you're interested and you're a patron, you can get the extended version of this interview in your premium content feed as well. We are joined this week by Cameron Paul. He's a software developer and a research associate and lecturer with Portland State University. And he also does work with the Oregon Health and Safety University, also known as OHSU. Thank you so much for joining us this week. No problem. Yeah, so uh, maybe you recognize Cameron's name because he's one of the authors of that paper, Carnosaurs as Apex Scavengers. And first, I just want to say I really enjoyed reading your paper. And I didn't even think about like sauropods as these carcasses that would be laying around as food sources. I don't know why I didn't think yeah. of that. <laughs> it's pretty It's pretty cool to think about. And I, to me anyway, it seems logical that if we talk about how huge these animals were, that we would also talk about what happened to their bodies after they died. And not just taphonomically, but you know, for the period in time between death and burial, they had to be, I think, pretty big resource rich reservoirs of energy. So I'm really glad that you liked it though. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I read a little bit about like the back and forth after the paper came out. And I think yeah. I remember you saying like that was basically the main thing you wanted to focus on was like what how would having these sauropods all over the place and dying periodically how does that affect the ecosystem is that right or did you come at it more from the what's going on with the the meat eaters side of things no the meat eaters thing was secondary i wanted to find out what happened to these things when they died of natural causes because you know most animals in nature actually die of disease or starvation so you know it's been fairly well accepted that big sauropods probably did not have many natural predators or maybe even any natural predators once they reached a certain size. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think that's a reasonable thing to assume too, because, you know, they, they were huge, but I was a little confused that, you know, that question hadn't really been asked before, you know, how, what, what happened after they died? How long would one body be on the landscape after it died? And then what happened to them? You know, it's possible that there were like super efficient insects or really <laughs> weird, you know, worm animals that, that didn't get preserved that could, you know, chew through a sauropod carcass really fast or something like that. that. That's that's possible. But I wanted to be as rational as possible about it. So I just kind of thought, you know, if just one of them died, how much meat would that be? And then, you know, I started to read about whale falls and how they're very similar to sauropods mass-wise. Usually a baleen whale is between 8 and 130 tons. <laughs> and, you know, it's very difficult, I think, to picture that much meat. And, and I also thought, like, well, 
When whales die, normally it's because they die of starvation. They're also migratory, so they get exhausted quickly, especially after a certain age. Hmm. They're not able to just keep going, and they die. And then they, then they float around for a while, and then they sink. And usually they sink to a depth where the pressure doesn't allow them to refloat, so they stay at the bottom. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting. The whale fault ecosystem situation is just fascinating because, you know, contrary to what many people might think, they usually die in the same places. Whales migrate, they go, you know, north to south, thousands and thousands of kilometers. So they usually die along this highway, which makes their carcasses a little bit predictable, especially to benthic or- organisms. Mm-hmm. And they and they stay down there for for decades, <laughs> eating many many types of animals over a long long period of time. You know, whale carcasses are used by everything: sharks, mm-hmm. other other whales, crabs, eels. And, you know, name some animal, and it's almost guaranteed that they eat a whale carcass at least sometimes. And that's even considering the fact that you know. For a long time, the whale carcass is floating around in the ocean like a buoy. <laughs> and then later it sinks, you know? And, but but sauropod carcasses, probably they died and just stayed in the same place. Yeah. Because they would have been way too heavy to move. Yeah. Right, I know. Nothing's going <laughs> to It's not like there were ant colonies. They're like, we got one, guys. <laughs> into the tube, you know, <laughs> probably, you know. But then I thought, you know, one of the big questions in paleontology has been about T-Rex as a scavenger. You know, people in the, even right after it was discovered thought, oh, it was too big to be a to be a predator. Maybe it was just a scavenger and look at its bullet-shaped teeth, you know, bone crunching type of thing. But no one has really ever considered the fact that T-Rex did not live with sauropods. So it didn't have access to these very, very big, you know, like McDonald's restaurants. Where they could just go. <laughs> get a Big Mac whenever they wanted and then and then store up the fat in their tails and wait around for the next one to die. So the the question about theropods as, as scavengers really just came as a result of the sauropod carry-on question and how how large they were. And I know I, to me, it would be very difficult to argue that they would need a new food source or need to supplement their their calories very often. They certainly did sometimes. We have lots of evidence that they that they attacked other dinosaurs sometimes. But the big question that that I think someone would need to come up with an answer for would be what happened to the sauropods when they died. Maybe they were, and you know, that's another thing. Maybe they were super rare. Maybe we got it all wrong and it wasn't a third or 50% of the 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 fauna in the system. Maybe it was Maybe they were like really, really hard to find and they only died rarely. That's possible. But the fossil record does not tell us that. It gives us a completely different answer. It, 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 the fossil record so far tells us that these things were diverse. There were several species living at the same place at the same time. You know, So even if hypothetically there was a bad year for the Brachiosauruses, the Camarasauruses and Diplodocuses would have filled the gap, I think, fairly well, even, even in a very, you know, stretch my imagination as far as it can go and say, these sauropods were either like way smaller than we thought they were, or way more rare than they appear to be, or something like that. That's the big pillar that I think 
you need to get around in order, you know, because because the study of ecosystems is really about the study of how energy flows through a system. Mm-hmm. And one of the big questions about dinosaurs is how did the theropods get so big? What was the limiting factor in their size? You know, everybody wants to know, you know, is there an upper limit? Is it like a Giganotosaurus and Carcharodontosaurus and T-Rex are like the biggest that they could be and why? I think it's not a coincidence that these carnosaurs almost always lived among sauropods. And then they almost never got binocular vision. They almost never got bite force power. They just didn't. And those are pretty big anomalies. And then, you know, they were all, you know, Carcharodontosaurus and Allosaurus were not really closely related. Neither one of them got a good sense of hearing. Their ocular nerve was like smaller than mine and they were huge. So those are kinds of things that pointed me in the direction of, well, maybe we've been thinking about this in the wrong way. You know, maybe we've been ignoring a very significant feature of these ancient ecosystems. And and maybe we should start start to look at them a little bit differently. Yeah. Is that an answer to the question or did I ramble too much? No, that's definitely an answer. Thank you. I, I just want to go back a little bit on the thinking about the carcasses, like comparing whale carcasses to sauropod carcasses. Yeah. Do you have to take into account some differences? Like since the whale, you know, it died in the water, does it last longer than a sauropod that would be on land? I don't know exactly, you know, how the breakdown process might differ. Well, there are some big differences, obviously, between whales and what I think sauropod carcasses would probably do. And that's insects. They are usually the first animals to get to a carcass. And, you know, they, they usually don't colonize floating whale carcasses. Hmm. And birds also don't usually colonize floating whale carcasses either. Interesting. Yeah. Isn't that weird? Yeah. You would think that there would be some seagulls or, or something that would see one and go down to it. Yeah. Seagulls are everywhere. How are they not on whale carcasses? <laughs> why, why not? I don't know. They just don't do it. I personally think it has something to do with whale skin being very, very, you know, very tough. Hmm. You know, what happens is a whale will die of starvation somewhere along the route of its migration path. And then they float a lot. And the first animals usually to get to them are sharks. So like great whites and tiger sharks and especially big great whites, because they're usually once they get to a a certain size, they're too fat to chase much. (laughs) So they're not very maneuverable. So they can't chase seals like they used to in their golden years. So they pretty much <laughs> chase these whales down and find the dead bodies and then they just chew on them. And, and you know, there was one study that calculated how much one shark would need and then, you know, to survive. And usually it's about like, they can get about 30 kilograms of food from a whale and then that feeds them for like two months. Wow. It's a long time. Yeah. Great whites are mesotherms, but they're still pretty cheap. And so, so they, a lot of times they'll just chew through as much as they want and then leave. I think it was probably the same type of a thing on land, except not sharks, but just like big carnivores. So that's, that's one big difference is that, is that whale carcasses float and sort of park carcasses didn't. Mm-hmm. Whale carcasses are targeted by mostly sharks and other sort of middle-sized carnivores in the ocean before that they, before they descend and then once they get down to a certain depth, they're really only available to animals like crabs and eels and, you know, very deep sea benthic sharks that, 
you know, have like the cheapest metabolism of all time. <laughs> uh, you know, they you need to eat like once a year and then they're they're fine. But but I don't think that that was probably a problem in the Jurassic or in any of these sauropod dominated systems. You know, they they would have probably been targeted by flies and you know other insects, and then subsequently probably just the big carnivores would fight over them, I think. Mm-hmm. Another interesting thing about whales, though, that is definitely different, I would think, is blubber. Whales are fatty. Mm-hmm. They, and actually, the rate at which the fat increases is like to a power of four. So, uh, you know, the bigger they get, they get like way, way more fat. <laughs> and so... I don't think that's probably true of sauropods. I can't imagine a blubbery sauropod existing for evolutionary reasons, but also just for, it would just be too funny to see a blubber. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it would be. Yeah. Um, but, but then, you know, I don't think sauropods had that. So it's probably, they were probably more protein rich than lipid rich because I think whale carcasses are very rich from a lipid standpoint mm-hmm. where, where terrestrial animals just don't usually have it. So I don't think that there would probably be, you know, the the concentration on fatty foods. So like sharks sometimes will target certain fats on a whale carcass over other ones. Like that's the thing that they go for is the either the fatty parts or like specific fatty parts on a whale. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think that it was probably just pretty raw lean meat on sauropods because even though, you know, they might have been analogs of whales and their migratory habits or mass also analogs of whales, I doubt that they had the fat that so many animals really just capitalize on the most. Yeah. yeah. Would, would there have been an issue, though, with, um, you know, how fast the meat rots and affecting... You know, like maybe the first few days, it's really easy for those theropods. They they come in, they they take the pieces they want, but then after a few weeks or months or whatever, you know, maybe they don't want it. It would make them sick or something. Microorganisms, there there's a lot of literature about how competition between microorganisms and scavengers like condors shapes their evolution pretty strongly. The vultures have evolved very, very hostile stomachs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They can kill anthrax. Wow. Mm. Yeah, they're very, very strong. Botulinum toxin is killed by their stomachs. Oh, that's handy. Yeah, that's really handy for them. But I would say that even if, let's throw a bone to Allosaurus and say he didn't have that. Lions and hyenas and other big predators in Africa and, and everywhere, actually, they don't really care. They get to a carcass late and they usually eat what they can from it even if it is in a later stage of decay. Hmm. You know, Cape buffaloes, you know, they die. Usually they die of starvation. Same is true of wildebeests. Um, Usually they die of starvation. It's well documented. Lions follow vultures to find these things. And then once they find them, they chase the vultures away. (laughs) What's left? And then so, so the lions don't care. And the vultures doesn't bother them. But then the other component of this, though, that's even more interesting to me is that vultures target carcasses normally in any state of decay, as long as there is consumable material. Hmm. So they, they will eat it. They, they don't look at the maggots and think that's gross or anything. They just eat it anyway. And (laughs) so even though they have, you know, they, they've got all the parts 
to guarantee that they can capitalize on the carcass really, really well. They evolved to eat carcasses. They'll eat, they'll eat it late, but most of the time they get there really early. Vultures are usually the first animals to find a carcass. And once they do, if there's enough of them, they strip it out very quickly. So even though they have very harsh stomachs, they don't always need to use them. There's just a selective advantage on them because, you know, toxic bacteria are really, they're tough. But if I had to roll the dice, I would say for sure that allosaurs and other sauropod carrion specialist animals probably were able to adapt to the bacteria problem just as vultures and even non-vultures today can. Mm, okay. Yeah. That's that's really interesting. I read something a little different about vultures that like most of them prefer what do they call it freshly dead meat that yeah. it's like 3 to 4 days. Is that just because they can? I think that's just because they can because even and and, and that is also very interesting because normally that only happens in places like Africa where they can choose. Mm. So there are lots of dead things in Africa that they can choose from and India too. India's India's vulture, I think there are 22 species of vulture in India. Oh, wow. And they, they prefer to target new stuff, but they also target old stuff in, in time periods where there aren't as many options. Mm-hmm. But the problem, the problem with studying them right now is that there's a, there's a vulture crisis in India. If you read about it, it's very tragic. Mm-hmm. So with Allosaurus, the idea is maybe they adapted in a way that they could handle the more rotting meat, but that, you know, if they came across something fresh, they're more likely to just go for it, or they're likely to have come across it first, maybe because they're the biggest or something like that. But then I'm wondering with vultures, I could see like, because they could fly. So it seems it'd be a lot faster for them to get to these fresh carcasses than maybe an allosaur that's walking around. And did they have anything that would have helped them find this fresher meat? I don't know. It's possible that they, you know, they were fairly tall. So that gives them a better vantage point than something shorter than them. And they didn't have competition from flying animals. They had a fairly good nose. So it's possible that they could smell the difference between good and bad ones, or or rather new and old carcasses. But I would imagine that probably the bigger ones would have an advantage at carcasses, even if they got there late just because they could outcompete the smaller ones or intimidate them to leave, which is what happens with vultures now and other scavenging animals as well. So that would be one advantage. But also, I don't see a situation where where there wouldn't have been enough fresh ones. Like even if we throw them a bone and say they needed to get to it within four days or else they, you know, it's too, you know, the bacteria were too bad, there was fungi all over it and, you know, maybe some confused animals from the ocean that, you know, were like, oh, I'm a bent the crab. I'm going to eat it. <laughs> they, you know, you know so even if in those really extreme hypothetical situations, there was so much meat that I don't think it makes sense to assume that they wouldn't try to find some at some stage of decay during a, any given year. Mm-hmm. You know, it seems like being as conservative as possible, thinking about these these whale carcasses, just a mountain of meat, even if we say half of it was too decayed for them by the time they got to it, there's still so much that it just doesn't seem rational to me to assume that they would have tried to find calories in other places that 
you know, unless they, unless there was something that we're really missing, unless there's a fact or a piece of the puzzle that we just don't, haven't found yet, you know, mm-hmm. and that, that may be some observational system that we're unable to reproduce here because, you know, we're 150 million years late. Yeah. However, it's pretty obvious that allosaurs had sense of smell and that it was developed enough that they could find things. And I think that that's a reasonable explanation because, you know, polar bears or any, actually most bears can smell things sometimes 30 miles away. So they have been documented to follow carcasses or even live animals over huge distances just by olfaction. So I think it's reasonable to assume that Allosaurus probably used its nose to find carcasses as well, because according to what we understand about their brains, the olfactory lobe in Allosaurus is really the the most developed part of the brain. So that's where I would put my money, probably. Yeah, Uh, I did. I really liked uh, one fact I saw you mention on a forum, I think, where you were mm -hmm. saying how vultures can consume like a whole elephant in what was the it was some really brief amount of time oh yeah there's a really good ecologist david houston who did a lot of carry-on research in the 80s and he basically spent all of his time in africa writing up about vultures and you know there's one instance where i think uh, an entire wildebeest carcass was stripped in eight minutes uh, <laughs> oh my gosh like they are very very efficient That's and amazing. They, it's amazing. <laughs> so there's nothing left. You know, once a flock of vultures gets to something, there's nothing left for other animals to eat. Even in elephants, vultures are not, they don't mess around when it comes to big carcasses. They, <laughs> they strip them really fast. There's like, there's another one where I think in India, they did this study about an elephant carcass that was stripped in like six hours. And I think more than 500 vultures descended on this elephant carcass and it was, it was gone. You know, less than a day. Wow. And I bet, I bet it was a pretty similar situation to what Allosaurus did because of the magnitude, you know, uh, an Allosaurus pack or, I don't know, congregation of them, they needed a, a sauropod carcass. And then, you know, they're able to consume like way, way more at once mm-hmm. than vultures. And they had, you know, teeth. They could cut through the thick skin probably and other, you know, they didn't have beaks or any of those other things that we would expect from modern vultures. So I bet it was a similar thing where, where, you know, if enough of them got there, I bet that they would strip out a a sauropod carcass just as fast. I could see that. That's assuming that they're gregarious enough that they (laughs) would allow each other to do that. (laughs) But I guess it it could be a one at a time thing then. You could have one eating and like the biggest one eats first and then leaves Mm -hmm. and then the next one. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> oh, I think I really want to do a project about this because from an evolutionary perspective, think about this. There would have been pressure on them to be the biggest, baddest allosaur at the carcass. You know, the biggest one would probably dominate or the biggest ones, you know, if they're like 10 big ones or the ones with the weirdest headgear, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but then they would probably, you know, so there's an advantage on being big, but there's probably downward selective pressure on them to be cheap enough to stay alive. So there's mm-hmm. probably an optimum, I think, size that they reached where they were still cheap enough to capitalize on sauropods, dead ones, but also big enough to dominate carcasses 
and and I, I know there's some math that I could do to figure that out, but I bet that that's probably part of an explanation for their size. And the other thing is, I want to extrapolate that in other ecosystems as well, because, you know, Carcodontosaurus, huge. Giganotosaurus, huge. I guess what I'm trying to go at is, I bet that there's some math where you could say, Giganotosaurus was 10 tons as a result of carry-on resources that were available to it. And maybe, maybe we could get a reliable estimate of the biggest sauropods or how many there were based simply on how big the, the theropods got, you know, like as a sort of a logical extrapolation, if that's really what's going on. It might not be go what's going on. Maybe they were, maybe they just hated, hated sauropod carry-on and it was poisonous <laughs> for them or something. But, but whatever the case may be, there, there could be some math that you could do to find out find the answer to some of these questions that still remain, you know, unanswered. Yeah. Is there any like modern analog that's useful for that? I assume a bigger hyena would probably yeah. get better pieces of meat. Probably. In in vultures, that's how it works. There are dominant and subservient vultures in all communities. You know, Andean condors are the dominant ones. Andean condors actually outcompete cougars at Carcassonne. <laughs> oh they are they don't mess around. And same with turkey vultures and king vultures and, and the new world and old world vultures. There are very distinct hierarchies where the biggest, weirdest ones are able to capitalize on the most resources. That's why they have so much, you know, caruncles all over their heads. And they have these displays that they do at carcasses to scare the other ones away. So that happens today. Hyenas, it's a bit different because even though hyenas do hunt in packs, they also hunt solitarily a lot. And they also usually, when they're looking for carcasses and following vultures, they're usually alone. Hmm. So so that might not be the best analog, or it might be, I don't know. Yeah, so it depends, like if they if they pull a vulture move and they're all sort of there at the same time, or they do a hyena-like yeah. move and they're one at a time. Yeah. Right, right. Is there an ecosystem? Because my first thought when I read the paper about Allosaurus being potentially a scavenger was like, that's weird because it's so huge. And right. I can't think of an ecosystem where the biggest animal is a scavenger. Is is there an ecosystem you know of where like the biggest animals are prefer scavenging? Well, in a modern ecosystem, like this, a terrestrial ecosystem, probably not a good analog because um, the bigger animals like tigers and lions, they scavenge whenever they can, but they need, they, they're, the vultures have a monopoly, so they're forced to hunt. <laughs> but I don't think it's unreasonable to assume that maybe it was the same as great white sharks because they great white sharks, you know, adults can be two or three tons and they're about, you know, the same size in comparison to the whales that they scavenge on. And once they reach a certain size, they don't do very much hunting. So the life cycle of a great white is really interesting. They start out as babies. And for the first few years, they just eat fish because their jaws aren't strong enough to eat big vertebrates. They, you know, their, their jaws don't mineralize until they're like 10 years old or something. And then finally, they have a strong bite force and they're able to hunt seals. And then for the middle part of their lives, they eat, they eat seals and, and, you know, other types of stuff that they like to eat. And then once they get humongous into like the later part of their life cycle they search for whales to scavenge and they do they get a lot of their food just from whales 
And so it's possible, I think, that that would be a better analogy for Allosaurus, even mm -hmm. though there are serious differences between marine environments and terrestrial environments. The energetic component, I think, is similar because, as I said before, ecosystems rely on the study of how energy flows through the system from one place to another. And the energetic component of this is very, very similar numerically. The whales, similar in size and mass to sauropods, and the great whites and other smaller sharks that are able to eat whale carrion during the floating stage of its carcass, they, you know, are about the same price, you know, 11 or 12 kilograms a day or 10 big bites of this whale carcass. And then, you know, the shark doesn't need to eat for two months or one and a half. <laughs> and I would think, you know, I would think it would be reasonable to assume that allosaurs also served a similar role as far as scavenging ecology, just from an energetics component, not, you know, without regard to other, you know, the morphological components of Allosaurus as an animal, but just how much it costs and, and where it can get its energy. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I really wanted to answer the question, or at least begin to answer the question of what happened to sauropod carcasses after they died. Mm -hmm. And would it be, would the meat be enough to support a population of allosaurs or other carnosaurs just as a default, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I think, to me, if there's that much available carry-on, and we're, if we're right about how big the sauropods were, to me, it doesn't seem like a rational argument to say the allosaurs got most of their calories from hunting. You know, it seems like it would be much more rational to say that the supply of carry-on was high enough to meet the demand of a sustainable population of allosaurs at least most of the time. That seems more rational to me than to say that they were necessarily apex predators that controlled population sizes or that were, you know, the same as lions of the same time. Because I think the dynamics of energy flow in those systems was much different than what happens today. Yeah. Yeah. And I like too that you were saying, well, it could, you know, basically they could be primarily carnivores and then whether or not that falls into the mostly scavenger or mostly yeah. predator, depending on the number of sauropods around and all that kind of stuff, it's still the same sort of flow of that big dead sauropod back into the rest of the ecosystem. Yes, definitely. It doesn't really matter if they got, if they got, you know, half of their calories from hunting and half from sauropods, that's really just not important to me. Apex scavenger, apex predator is not the most important thing to know about them. What is important from an ecological standpoint is where they got most of their calories. And it seems like a weak argument to say that there were big dead sauropods, just like there are big dead whales today. And also, allosaurs still needed to make up some deficit of calories by hunting. That doesn't seem rational to me, but maybe it is. And maybe I'm completely <laughs> wrong. Yeah, something's eating the big dead sauropod. That's the, <laughs> yeah. that's the mystery. So, yeah, just want to say thank you so much for joining us today and talking through our, your paper. Oh, thank you. And thank you for inviting me. I, I really enjoyed this. This was really fun. Thanks again, Cameron. That was a fantastic interview. And it was really fun to talk about how the energy and the amount of carry-on available in an ecosystem really can be another way to look at how the animals interacted. 
Definitely. Yeah. Thanks for chatting with us. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Now on to our dinosaur of the day, Denversaurus, which was a request from Tyrant King via our Patreon and Discord. So thanks. Denversaurus was a nodosaurid and chylosaur that lived in the Lake Cretaceous in what is now South Dakota in the U.S., in the Hell Creek Formation, in Wyoming, the Lance Formation, and Texas in the Aguja Formation. It had a wide snout and a wide skull, and it was covered in osteoderms and had shoulder spikes. As you'd expect for a notosaurid right. ankylosaur. But these spikes weren't coming from its ribs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Denversaurus was estimated to be about 20 feet or 6 meters long and weigh 3 tons. The type species is Denversaurus schlesmanii. The fossils were found in 1922 by Philip Reinheimer, a collector and technician at the Colorado Museum of Natural History, which is now the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. And the fossils were found in Corson County, South Dakota. Barnum Brown referred those fossils, DMNH468, to Edmontonia longiceps in 1943. Then in 1988, Bob Barker said that that fossil was a new species, Denversaurus, and another species, Edmontonia rugosidens, was Chasternbergia. The genus name Denversaurus means Denver lizard. Maybe <laughs> you could have guessed that. And it refers to the Denver Museum of Natural History. The species name is in honor of Lee Schlesman, founder of the Schlesman Family Foundation, who is a benefactor to the museum. And the holotype is part of the collection of the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. It includes a skull, no lower jaws, and some osteoderms. Skull is all you need, usually. Yeah. It's also nice to see the osteoderms. True. Bacher also referred AMNH3076 to Denversaurus. That was a skull found in Texas by Barnum Brown and Roland Bird. And that skull has been described as weathered. <laughs> <laughs> so in other words, not great. Yeah. In a 1988 New York Times article, Bacher said, quote, Denversaurus was probably a little like a three-ton armadillo with spikes, end quote. Sounds like it would fit in in Texas. Big. Yeah. Armadillo-y. But with spikes. <laughs> he also said, quote, there seems to have been an evolutionary trend to get the eyes up off the ground and away from dust and possibly to allow for a better view of potential predators, end quote. Interesting. Mm -hmm. That's one way to think of it. I never thought about the influence of dust on eye placement. Yeah, me either. I guess when we're walking around, we're not that close to the ground. <laughs> That's true. We have our <laughs> eyes about as far from the dust as possible. Yeah. In 1990, Kenneth Carpenter said Denversaurus was Edmontonia sp. Meaning unclear species. Yeah. 
And he said that Bakker's reason for naming Denversaurus, which were the eye sockets were more to the rear of the skull rather than the middle, to get it away from the dust, presumably, was based on Bakker's reconstruction of the skeleton, but that skeleton was partially crushed. Carpenter said that this fossil that was some kind of species of Edmontonia had affinities to Edmontonia rugosidens. In 2000, Ford found Denversaurus to be valid, though, after looking at osteoderms in ankylosaur systematics. In 2015, Michael Burns wrote his thesis on intraspecific variation in ankylosaurs and found Denversaurus to be likely valid based on phylogeny. He also mentioned another specimen, BHI-6225, an endocast. Burns described the highest point of the skull roof of Denversaurus as being between the orbits, where the eyes are, and agreed with Bakker that the holotype did have orbits or its eyes more toward the rear of the skull, but said there was too much variability in individual Denversaurus that this character was not, quote, taxonomically useful. So he agreed then that its eyes were more towards the back. Maybe that did help this particular individual with the dust, but Based on the specimens that we have, uh, maybe this wasn't consistent or, you know, it's just not consistent enough to say this trait makes it Denversaurus. Interesting. Burns did say in his thesis that Denversaurus, Edmontonia, and Panoplosaurus were all in the same clade, Panoplosaurinae. And he also said that Edmontonia was more basal than Denversaurus. The team from the Black Hills Institute found a Denversaurus skeleton in... Wyoming, and they nicknamed that one Tank. That's BHI 127327. And Tank includes the lower jaws, parts of the torso, and over 100 osteoderms. Wow. Yeah. You can, if you really wanted to, order a cast of Tank from them. (laughs) I think Tank is a pretty good nickname for almost any ankylosaur. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) But one where you have a ton of osteoderms is a good choice. So you can see Denversaurus at Woodland Park's Rocky Mountain Dinosaur Resource Center in Colorado in the U.S. Other dinosaurs that lived around the same time and place as Denversaurus included T-Rex, Triceratops, Edmontosaurus, Struthiomimus, and Pachycephalosaurus. And our fun fact of the day is that higher oxygen levels aren't the only reason Cambrian and Permian insects were so large. Dinosaurs also play a factor in this. You may have guessed that it's a fun fact on a dinosaur podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, interesting, because the insect's food source also helped them grow because their food source was so large. Is that what you mean? That's not what it is. Oh, okay. I'm going to make you wait to find out why it is. All right. (laughs) (laughs) But the, the first known flying animals are insects, and they're the insects in the Carboniferous, at least they're the earliest ones we know of. They beat all the vertebrates to the punch including being about 100 million years before pterosaurs and about 200 million years before Archaeopteryx, (laughs) or the first flying dinosaurs, basically. After bacteria, insects might be the most successful. They were definitely some of the earliest successful animals. Many of the early flying animals were dragonflies. Nice. As a side fun fact, the dragonfly group is named Paleoptera, which is Greek for old wing. (laughs) (laughs) They've had those wings for a while. Yeah, it's pretty fitting since they're basically some of the oldest flying, maybe the oldest flying insects. 
The thing that all of Paleoptera has in common is that they don't have any ability to fold their wings. So the structures are relatively simple. And, you know, if you've ever seen a dragonfly not flying, its wings are still sticking out mm -hmm. <laughs> just pretty much how they would be if it was flying. Meganeura is one of the most famous giant insects. It's about 300 million years old, and it was right before the Carboniferous-Permian boundary that it lived, although it could have lived a little bit beyond it because it's that boundary isn't really a mass extinction or any big hard line in the sand where most of the stuff died or anything. Meganeura is a dragonfly with a two-foot-plus wingspan, about 70 centimeters, which would be pretty creepy. Maybe or, you would appreciate or it. Or pretty from a distance. Yeah, could be. Especially if it had that sort of iridescent color to it. Mm -hmm. That could be kind of neat. Early insects did benefit from higher oxygen levels, which allowed them to get large with simple respiratory systems. There's a lot of talk about this, how, well, you know, they didn't have complex circulatory systems, so they relied on diffusion to get the oxygen into their body that they needed. And then when oxygen levels dropped, they couldn't get the oxygen into their bigger bodies, so they went extinct. That was the idea of large insects. And there certainly were lots of large flying insects throughout the Carboniferous and Permian when oxygen levels were really high. And then at the end of the Permian, there was a massive drop in oxygen, which created the Great Dying, as it's known, the largest mass extinction ever, and also the largest insect extinction ever, hmm. along with lots of other animals. However, lower oxygen levels aren't the only reason we don't have huge bugs today. A study by Clapham and Carr in 2012 looked at the evolutionary history of insect body sizes, by plotting over 10,000 samples of fossilized insect wing lengths. <laughs> That's so many. Over time, yeah. It's a lot of samples. Not the kind of size studies that we're used to with dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. They found that oxygen concentration was correlated to insect size, but only for the first 150 million years of their evolution. Hmm. Basically, it was correlated until the end of the Jurassic, and then maximum insect sizes decreased even though oxygen levels were increasing. They didn't want to risk another extinction? <laughs> well, what we think is that there was probably something around that was preventing them from getting bigger. Hmm. And the early Cretaceous is when lots of birds were evolving. Oh, yeah. And the way that the authors put it is, quote, particularly as birds acquired adaptations that allowed for more agile flight, mm -hmm. end quote. And presumably that could mean eating insects or maybe eating the things that large insects would want to eat. Another reduction in flying insect sizes happened during the Cenozoic, and this that's right after the Cretaceous mass extinction. Mm -hmm. This could be because of the evolution of bats. Oh, yeah. that's when bats evolved. Bats eat, what is it? Some bats eat their body weight in insects in a night? I think it might even be more than that. More they than can that, eat yeah. so many, and like mosquitoes, they'll eat just an insane hundreds or thousands in a night. Mm -hmm. That's why I like bats so much. But it's also possible that it wasn't due to bats and it was due to other species of birds evolving because there were also lots of new birds popping up around them too. And insects continued to get even smaller. So in other words, we probably have dinosaurs and bats to thank for keeping flying insects small, which I appreciate because big flying insects are super creepy. Yeah, especially when they buzz right in your ear. Oh, I hate it. They don't even have to be that big to be annoying when mm -hmm. they're near your ear. Imagine a two-foot wingspan flying near your ear. Ugh. Or mosquitoes, the ones that give you the bites. 
Yeah. A giant one who... <laughs> like a vampire bat mosquito. <laughs> so gross. Well, good. Guess humans evolved at the right time then. Yeah, I'm happy about it. <laughs> that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thank you for listening. If you want to join our growing community, again, that's patreon.com slash inodino. Thanks again, and until next time. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.